Thanks for tuning in to the Crew at UGA podcast. We are so glad to have you with us. Crew exists to call students to know God, grow in their faith, and go to the world. If you would like to get more connected with Crew at UGA, or if we can help you in any way at all, go to the show notes and click on the link, or follow us on Instagram at Crew at UGA. All right, let's get started. What's up, everybody? The uh, offer of a free meal to a college student is a powerful thing. Y'all got very excited about that. Um, I'll talk to you a little bit while I'm getting set up here. So as I said, my name's Irby. So I work with Athletes in Action, which is the sports ministry of crew. So I spend most of my time working with student athletes here. This is my 14th year. Doing that, I'm a graduate of this wonderful university, 2008. Uh, I was not an athlete. I was a trombone player in the Red Coat Band. A trombone player? No, Red Coat? Come on, baby, let's go. Um, But I'd love to talk and have fun, but we really, really have a lot to get to tonight in answering this question. Um, I guarantee you we're going to be on the longer end of the time frame they gave me, so if you're... One of those people who needs proper expectations, just we're going to be over half an hour, okay? But we're not going to be crazy long, I promise. So, like they said, this is the last, last week in a series of questions asking for a friend. And tonight, um, our question is really a good one. And it's one that keeps a lot of people from even considering following Jesus. Let me get my timer going here. And the question is there on the board. How could a loving God allow so much suffering? And some people might state the question sort of like this. Doesn't the reality of suffering and evil in our world disprove the existence of the God of the Bible? And it's a really good question. And there's no way we're going to exhaustively cover all this tonight. So here's my goal tonight. Um, I hope that I say something that resonates with you. And I hope that uh, you will take that and find somebody to have further conversation with. So there's crew staff all around here. Like, you're not, probably not going to leave here completely satisfied with everything that I'm going to give you on this. But um, this is a safe place to ask questions, to struggle with this stuff, and I would say even to just outright disagree. So find a staff person, say, hey, man, can we talk a little bit more about this? And I guarantee you that they will want to do that. So... Here we go. I think that there are two types of people that ask this question or two general approaches to it. There's kind of a philosophical or logical approach. Um, So I'll cover some of those main arguments. And uh, I just hope that as we talk about that, that if you're one of those people who who would would be in that that camp, um, that you will at least get to see that suffering really doesn't mean that God cannot exist. So you may not leave totally convinced that the God of the Bible is real, but I hope that you'll at least open the door for the possibility that God really does exist. And then for some of you tonight, this is a much, much heavier topic. It's not merely intellectual or heady. It's very, very personal. You have been through something in your life that is very very difficult, and you have suffered, and you have experienced pain, and you very well may have spent time asking God not to allow that thing to happen, 
or to ask him to take it away. And he did allow it to happen or he has not taken it away. And you are the one that experiences the pain and the suffering of that every day. First, I just want to say I'm really sorry. And I hope that you will hear me speak from a place of compassion tonight, even though I'm going to speak very passionately about, I think, the way God would, would address you and what he would want you to know about him. Um, so, but I, that's real. It's so real. The pain, the hurt is real. And uh, I'm not asking you to suppress that. I'm not going to tell you to just put the Jesus stamp over it and get over it. I'm not going to do that. So I hope that you will leave here tonight a little more convinced that God sees you in that, that he cares about you in that, that he has a purpose in that, and he has a plan one day to redeem that completely. So let me pray before we get started, and then uh, we'll get into kind of answering this question. So Lord, um, God, I just, there's, there's people in this room right now that uh, this is really heavy. They just come in really heavy, and this is really an obstacle to faith for them. Or, or we know people who this is an obstacle for, to faith for them. And so, God, I just pray that you would do your work tonight. I pray that you would convince those who come at this logically and philosophically that, that their arguments aren't maybe as sound as they think that they are. Um, and God, for those who come at this very personally, God, I pray that they would leave here convinced that you are not absent, you are not a God who does not care, um, but you see them, you're with them, and you love them in the midst of it. So I pray all that in Jesus' name, amen. Get a little sip here. Sorry, that was not for dramatic effect. My mouth is dry. All right, so the philosophical, logical side of things. So the basic argument goes something like this. If God were, if God were real, then pointless, needless suffering would not exist in the world. But pointless, needless suffering does exist in the world. Therefore, God cannot be real, or the God of the Bible cannot be real. So when I say needless, pointless evil, I'm talking about things like there is no good reason for a tsunami to wipe out a third world country or village and kill thousands of people. That is needless and pointless suffering. There is no good reason for childhood cancer. That is needless and pointless. Okay, that's, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about here. And I cannot give you an answer as to God's specific purpose and why those types of things happen and what the reason is. But there is a, there's a, a logical fallacy that is, that is embedded within the premise of needless and pointless evil exists. And so I'm going to pose these questions. I promise I'm not asking these questions cynically. I'm asking them really genuinely and sincerely. So the, here, here's, here's the questions I want you to think about. Who are you to sit in judgment over all things? Do you know the inner workings of every human life on this earth? Do you know how all events that happen throughout history are going to play out down the road and how they're all interconnected and what the results are going to be and the personal effects on every single life throughout all of human existence. 
And furthermore, isn't it obvious that at least in some cases, suffering does in the end produce good in people's lives? Okay, so those are some rhetorical questions. But the point is this, that, that just because you do not see a definite reason or point to something that happens doesn't mean that there absolutely, in fact, cannot be a reason to it. None of us can contain enough wisdom and knowledge and foresight to make that claim. So we can't say using sound logic that based on this, this premise that God doesn't exist. So I'll give you a more silly, lighthearted example. So one of the teams that I work with on campus is the swim team. When I started working with the swim team, I knew nothing about the sport of swimming except that Michael Phelps had just dominated the Olympics in Beijing. Um, I knew nothing about it. Now, the swim team, if you've ever been to swim practice, they do some funny things. Okay? They, they, they do all this weird equipment. Well, one thing that they do, they wear these mesh gloves and mesh socks, and they get in and they swim with them. One day, I promise you, I saw them put their fins on and then put the mesh socks over the fins. Now, I'm like, what is going on? Like, I have no understanding of why they would do this. But it would be really foolish for me as someone who's never swam, never been around swimming, never coached swimming, never been trained in swimming, to go up to the coach and say, hey, coach, these little mesh things, they're really silly, and they look stupid, and they're pointless. And I have concluded that you are not qualified to be a coach, and therefore you are not a swim coach. That would just be silly. Like, I don't have, I don't have, the, I don't have a anything to stand on to say that to the coach because I don't know enough. It's not fair for me to come to that conclusion. So here's what I would want you, you at, at least admit that your viewpoint of the way the world works is limited. You do not contain all knowledge and all wisdom of how everything's going to play out. And if that is true, then your premise is incorrect. You cannot say matter-of-factly that there is needless, pointless evil in the world. You can say, I don't see a point to it. But the premise isn't true. Therefore, the conclusion that God cannot exist isn't right either. You have to at least open the door for the possibility that the God of the Bible does exist. So that's one logical, philosophical approach to this. The other one that I think, um, and this, most of you may connect a little bit more with this. You're appealing more to a sense of, like, right and wrong and justice and injustice. So if God were real, if the God of the Bible were real, he wouldn't allow suffering. There's so much injustice and wrong that happens, and he would care about that. So the God of the Bible cannot exist. I actually think in this case your premise is correct. I think right and wrong do exist. But here's the problem, the, the logical fallacy here is, you either get a sense of absolute right and wrong in the existence of God. You either get both of them or you get neither of them, but you can't get one or the other. So here's what I mean. If you're going to claim that an absolute right and wrong exists, but that there is no God, my question to you is, where does your standard of right and wrong come from? If there is no God, 
who created the world with design and purpose, then we are literally just a random combination of physical materials who over billions of years have happened to end up looking like this. So why do I care what you think is right? Who are you to say what's right, if that's real? Okay? So if God's not real, then you have nothing, you've undermined your premise, which is that, that God would care about justice and right and wrong. Again, I actually think, I think your premise, I think your premise is correct. I think that God does care about right and wrong. I think that you should care about right and wrong. Scripture says that God has written his law in our hearts. I think the reason we have such a strong desire for justice and a strong empathy for suffering is because God is real and we have gotten those things from him. That's how he's made us and that's how he has designed the world to work. So the conclusion that God is not real undermines the premise. So it opens the door at least for the possibility that the God of the Bible is real. Okay, that's two very quick uh, kind of responses to a logical philosophical uh, problem with suffering. Again, I'm sure, especially if you're really passionate about this, you've got some objections. I'm sure you've got some questions. I would encourage you write those things down. Find a staff person and say, hey, can we, can we talk more about that? But I just want you to see right now that the existence of suffering and evil does not mean that the God of the Bible cannot exist. And hopefully that opens a door for you to begin asking questions like, well, then how does God care about suffering? How does he show that he cares? What does he do about it? And that's kind of where we're headed next. So, for those of you who mainly object to this because it hits really close to home, what I want to show you through Scripture is how God is aware of your suffering, even when he doesn't do anything about it, at least at first. Um, how he cares deeply about suffering, how he never leaves his people to suffer alone. And a lot of times he wants to give us something better that we can only receive through suffering. So there are dozens of passages we could look at in Scripture to go through this. But one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is John chapter 11. So if you want to open up and go to John 11, um, it's going to be on the screen. There are lots of verses. We're going to go through almost this whole chapter um, as we look at the way Jesus interacts with this family here. So it is up on the screen. All right, I'm going to pull this up. We're going to start. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4. And then we're going to stop. So here's some people flipping. I'll give you a second. I'll take a sip of water while you're doing that. All right. Here we go. John 11, verses 1 through 4. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. All right, a few things to point out 
right here at the beginning. Okay, Jesus has a very real human relationship with these two sisters and this brother, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They were, they were truly dear friends to him. And it's interesting, the sisters don't make a request of Jesus to come heal Lazarus. They just let him know that Lazarus is sick and they expect that he's going to come because they know that Jesus loves Lazarus. Okay, They say that in verse 3. The word love here in verse 3 is the Greek word phileo. It's a very emotional love. It, it, it's kind of, there's an emotional attachment. Um, it's an affection or a fondness for someone. So think about the way you love your close friends, the way you love your family. Some of you love your dogs in this way. Okay? It's just a, a very emotional fondness and affection. Okay? Jesus loves Lazarus and these sisters in that way. And then in verse 4, Jesus gives kind of a little preview and a purpose for what's going to happen. And he says, this sickness will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Interesting that the author would put that there because we just kind of came to that. Okay, Word loved here, verse 5. Different word in the Greek. It's agapao, which is the verb form of agape. Now, agape love and phileo love are not completely different. Um, there is definitely a, a genuine affection in agape love, but it's a little bit deeper than that. Um, agape love is a, a love that is, it is committed. It is a love that is unconditional. It is a self-giving type of love. It is a love that always has the best interest of the object of that love in mind okay so it's not just merely emotional but there's a deeper a commitment um, unconditional self-giving type of love here okay so Jesus loves Martha and her sister and Lazarus in this way verse 6 so because Jesus loves them like this after hearing that Lazarus was ill and certainly implied dying. What does Jesus do? Verse 6. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He does not leave immediately. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Next, next slide. There we are. After, Jesus, uh, after saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Well, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So because Jesus agape loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he, knowing that Lazarus is going to die, stays put where he is. And then at the end, he gives us sort of another reason or preview. I'm glad that I was not there for your sake so that you may believe. Jesus loved them, loved them. They let him know that Lazarus was sick. 
He knew that Lazarus would die, and he let it happen. Here's the first main point I want you to see. Jesus' love for you and his willingness to let you suffer and maybe even die are not mutually exclusive. Jesus' love for you and his willingness to let you suffer and maybe even die are not mutually exclusive. Some of you may hear that and be encouraged. Some of you may be infuriated by that. Either way is fine. The truth will set you free, but it may piss you off first. Any Ted Lasso fans in here? Get that reference. But it's true. The truth will set you free, but it may piss you off first. Let's keep going. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, so he's, he's gone to where Mary and Martha and Lazarus were. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brothers. I'm just going to point out their grief is very real. Okay? They're being consoled. Okay? They're, they are truly grieving the loss of their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So they're grieving. And Martha, grieving, runs to Jesus. And essentially she says to Jesus, like, Jesus, you could have stopped this. You could have stopped it. And even now, if you wanted, you could fix it. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And her being a good Jewish girl says, I know he's going to rise again in the end times. And she doesn't say this, but there's like this implied, but like what about now, Jesus? Do you care about me now? Maybe I know that way off in the future things are going to be okay, but what about now? And Jesus' response is, honestly, it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit surprising to me. He doesn't really alleviate her suffering in that moment. Instead, he gives her a truth that she could only fully realize and be able to accept through her suffering. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. It's about me. I am what you need here. And Martha responds with a genuine, amazing faith. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Here's the second thing I want you to see. The first was Jesus' love for you and his willingness to let you suffer are not mutually exclusive. The second is this. Sometimes there are essential truths that we can only 
understand and receive through suffering. And Jesus loved Martha enough to let her go through it so that she could receive something better. Let's keep moving. There's another sister. 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, again, notice her grief, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Mary comes out and gives Jesus the same, same response that Martha does. She says, Jesus, you could have stopped this. Jesus' response to her, though, is, is really different than what he says to Martha. It's not better or more right or more wrong. It's just different. And uh, he sees her. He sees the people around her. He sees them weeping. And it says he is deeply moved in his spirit. He's moved by their grief. Um, this is not, and then Jesus weeps. Okay, this is not a patronizing statement when it says that Jesus wept here. It's not patronizing. Um, he is deeply moved because of the grief and the brokenness and the hurt that sin and death have caused for the people that he loves, okay? We haven't talked yet about what sin has to do with this, okay? We'll get to that in a little bit. But Jesus is deeply moved by the brokenness here, which is a result, ultimately, of sin. And he weeps. He weeps because they are weeping. Here's the third thing I want you to see. Jesus is deeply moved and troubled in his spirit when he sees your suffering. He is not neutral towards it. He doesn't just watch you and think, yeah, if they could just know enough or if they could just get over this or, wow, they deserve it. He's deeply moved and troubled and, and he's grieved over it and he weeps with you. And just an aside, I just kind of think this is interesting. Look at verse 37 again. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Are they asking the same question we're asking tonight? If he, if he, why would he allow this to happen? But is, this is not a new question. On the very day that this is happening, people are asking the same question that we're asking tonight. But here we go. We get to the really good part here. Verse 38 through 34. 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And we had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. This is amazing, y'all. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is a wild scene, okay? A, none of you have ever been in a situation like this before. This is wild. Martha is like, Jesus, please don't take the stone away. So even though she's exhibited great faith, she doesn't, she doesn't actually believe that, that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead right here. She just, she just can't even imagine that that's going to happen. And Jesus says to her, didn't I tell you? If you believe, you're going to see the glory of God. And then Jesus prays out loud. Why does he pray out loud? So that the people around would believe. And then he does something crazy. He doesn't just speak to the dead man. Okay, we've seen people go to gravestones and, and you know, talk to the people that are there. No, Jesus didn't just speak in to Lazarus, Jesus commands the dead man. He commands him. He says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man obeys the voice of the one who is the resurrection and the life. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus has the last word on your suffering. And Jesus has the last word over death. Jesus will have the last word. His love for you and his willingness to let you suffer are not mutually exclusive. What was the second one? I've lost my notes. Oh, here we go. Sometimes there are essential truths that we can only understand and receive through suffering. Jesus is deeply moved and troubled in his spirit when he sees you suffering. And Jesus has the last word over suffering and even death. He may not always do something as direct and extreme as he does here in the case of Lazarus. And I'm, I would bet you, you're going to have to wait longer than three or four days to see Jesus come through and to see what he's going to do in areas where you are suffering. But he is going to do something good. What does he say? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. And you know, he may not even take the hard thing away in this lifetime. Some of you know the story of Paul in 2 Corinthians. He prays three times, God, would you please take away this thorn in my flesh? He prays it three times. He asks God three times. And God says, Paul, my grace 
is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I'm not going to take the hard thing away from you, Paul, but guess what? I will be enough for you. And where you are weak, I will show myself to be powerful in your life. I'm not leaving you hanging. You're not going to lack anything that you need. You're not going to have a lesser experience in this life than anybody else. I will be enough for you. There's so much more that we could say about the issue of suffering. But for me personally, the reason that this question doesn't really pose an obstacle to my faith is that ultimately Jesus took on all suffering himself so that we could be redeemed from it. We call it the gospel. Hopefully you hear it here in some format just about every week. But just real quick, you see, evil and suffering in the world, they don't come from God. Those things are a result of our rebellion and our defiance against God. We, we have earned it. Now, I'm not saying that your suffering is a direct result of your own sin. Okay, sometimes it is. Not always, though. You very well may have been hurt by someone else's sin. But what I want you to see is that sin is the cause of all suffering in the world. And we are all guilty of sin. So, God could have just ignored our suffering and said, well, look, they're getting what they deserve. They've sinned, stuff. That's just the consequence of that. But he didn't do that. God sent his son to be one of us. Y'all, Jesus experienced the pain and the suffering and the temptation in life that we experience. And yet he did it perfectly. He did it without sin. And then he went to the cross. Undeservedly, but willingly. He suffered the full wrath of God for our sin. So that we wouldn't have to do that. And then he rose from the dead proving that he really is the resurrection and the life. Like he told Martha here in John chapter 11. And he offers his life to anybody who would repent of their sin and believe in him. Y'all, that's a God who sees suffering. That's a God who cares about suffering. That's a God who has chosen to suffer in our place. And he is a God who one day will redeem and end all suffering for good, forever, for eternity. Why doesn't he just do it now? I don't know, but I, I think one of the reasons he doesn't do it now Y'all, there's people who haven't heard yet. There's people who haven't heard yet. And God wants them to be a part of it too. And so while we wait with joy and hope in the midst of our suffering for that day to come, we share this message with as many people as we can so that they too may know the good news and get to be a part of the redeemed eternity where there will be no suffering because our Savior has taken it for us. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, this is, uh, this is deep, hard stuff. Um, 
But God, I am grateful that you are not neutral to suffering. That you're not indifferent to it. And God, to be honest with you, I'm grateful that you do allow it. It really sucks sometimes. But God, you are good in it. And Lord, I pray that for people in this room who are struggling with this right now, Lord, that they would believe that you are good and that you are with them in their suffering. Not asking God that you just, I don't know, I just, I don't, I don't, don't want to put just the Jesus stamp over it and let's get over it. But God, in the midst of it, would you be near to them? Would you let them know that you love them, that you care about them, that you are working good in their life, that you have died to redeem this and that one day, we will experience you in your goodness for eternity with no more suffering. Jesus, thank you for being the resurrection and the life that we all need. Would you help us to believe that? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.